welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. So today I am talking to Susan Strauss. And I, Susan Strauss is a storyteller, an educator, a, an author of several books, a person who's worked with literally audiences in a lot of different countries, in a lot of different venues. And we're going to learn more about that today. How are you, Susan? I'm great. Thanks. <laughs> well, yeah. your, your new book is the impetus for this conversation, but we're going to get to that later. I, I'm really interested in knowing more about you. I, I met you many years ago at National Association for Interpretation Conferences, but I was wearing my executive director hat and I was not going to programs and hearing great presentations. I was mostly dealing with um, the kind of troubleshooting of issues that come up during a conference. So now I get to learn more. Yeah, great. Where did you grow up and how did this all begin? Yeah, I... <laughs> Um, well, to give the long story sh in a short version, I, so technically I was born in Manhattan in New York city. Wow. My parents were New Yorkers, but I only lived there two months of my life. And I, I say that because I just was in New York and it's, it's really a beautiful place if there wasn't so much building on it, <laughs> but, um, and then I grew up really in Florida, in Gainesville, Florida which I feel like is why I have so much love of natural, the natural world. I grew up among a lot of snakes and we had a neighbor who was a biologist who had a huge whale carcass in his backyard. He had a pet Galapagos tortoise. So I had all of these senses as a child. And then my parents moved where I spent most of my youth in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., which was also in those days a beautiful environment, a very wild and beautiful environment that, that I watched as a teenager get eaten up by suburban development. So um, I always say I, I, keep, I keep traveling to find a place that's reminds me of what Virginia was like before it got so developed. Um, and I even have a story uh, about it called Refugee from Suburbia. So um, yeah, that's, those, are the, those were the influences. And I, you know, I was really actually really fortunate to grow up in Northern Virginia in that particular uh, high school. I had some fantastic teachers and in particular I had um I had one teacher named Samuel Withers I just love that name uh Samuel Withers he was a personal friend of Robert Frost oh my and and learning poetry with Mr. Withers was always an adventure very poor language student I um I didn't learn to read until I was, I, I, I could not read in fifth grade. Oh, so wow. I was sent by my teacher to get some sort of remedial help. I remember my freshman year of high school, I, the teacher generously gave me a D minus because I just didn't, I was not interested in grammar and these kinds of things. But then I had Mr. Withers and uh, Trudy Sunberg and Trudy Sundberg was a magnificent teacher. And she 
played so many recordings of poets. She played recordings of Ernest Hemingway and um, William Faulkner. So I, I always say, and then we went to theater, we went to a lot of uh, Shakespeare at the local theaters in Washington. And I always say I fell in love with literature through my ears. So uh, in by junior, senior year, I was memorizing poetry and I felt like that was a, having a special treasure or a jewel that I could re remember poetry and then speak it. You know, um, I'll just say one more thing that just come, came to mind is that Mr. Withers, one day I asked him, you know, I was passionate about baby seals as a teenager. And um, there was a big protest happening downtown about the clubbing of baby seals. And I asked Mr. Withers if I could write up on the board where this protest was happening. And he said, yes. And there was a, a kind of a, a jaded, rough senior guy who, that was in the class. And he said, oh yeah, baby seals, they're really cute. And, um, and I just started to speak to him like fire was coming out of me, you know? And Mr. Withers said, just a minute. And he could do that in those days. He took me by the hand down the hallway. He went into Mrs. Sunberg's class and he said, wait out here. And then he came back out and got me and he brought me into the class and he said, now tell all of them what you just told that boy back in my class. Wow. <laughs> That's wonderful. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. And I remember the moment I began to speak, I was terrified and then i thought but i i was passionate about what i was telling so i just i went for it and what a sweet thing that he he saw that you know and did something about about that that's really a special gift it is my uh my son was not a avid student and I was a single dad when he was in seventh or eighth grade. He was just not doing well at school. I did get to meet a lot of his teachers because they'd call me in for parent teacher conferences and say, Toby doesn't pay attention in class and he talks a lot and he likes to tell stories. And uh, he had a teacher who got him to play viola. And I was teaching him mandolin at home. So he was learning orchestral stuff at school and bluegrass at home. And this teacher was incredible with him. And I said, so is he nice to you? And he said, not at all. He, he's very strict with me. And I, I said, you like that? You don't like that from me? <laughs> he said, well, actually, I do. I think he cares. And I, I love it when a teacher can make that kind of connection and help a student find something that they're not finding in maybe the normal curriculum. Yes, yes. Yeah. Poetry. I still remember everything I memorized in high school. Kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. We memorized a lot of it in high school. Uh, for the world tradition of poetry was quite strong. And uh, I had teachers that really liked to do that. So where yeah. did storytelling enter the story for you? Yeah, and I think about how that, you know, I had very good relations with my grandparents, too. That was an influence on me. Um, my German grandparents, um, my 
my German grandfather uh, was a very clever person and he, uh, they were German and they, uh, he just detected very early on that he should take his family out of Germany. And uh, so then I, there was lots of storytelling around my house with looking at family photographs of all of the people who had died in the Holocaust. And even my father knew because of research where they had died. And so this was very serious. Oh, these conversations, you know, it was classic. My parents were kind of European. My father was born in Germany, of course, and my mother's parents were both born in Europe. And so there was dinner time was a two hour event, you know, and there was lots of conversation about a lot of things. Um, whereas my Dutch grandfather, my mother's father, who was a total roughneck, <laughs> He was just the opposite of my German uh, grandparents who were educated and refined. And um, my grandpa Cornelius, Cornelius Lambertus Doe's beautiful name, but he was called slim because he was very tall and slender. And he, you know, he had tattoos up and down his arms in the days when that was not a cool thing to have. <laughs> And he was a complete embarrassment to my mother because he he would cuss profusely. I mean, he was just a roughneck. He, um, anyway, not to go into his story too much, but he had been a sailor and he would tell these outrageous stories about his days uh, on the seas. Our favorite was when he he was just missing his, his ship, which in his heavy Dutch accent, he would call his chip. And he was, uh, and he swam in the Havana Harbor, you know, booms and I was swimming for my ship. And he, he swims for his ship and then the, the guys pull him out of the water and there they were six of them, man eaters, you know? So he was surrounded by sharks. So this is the kind of other kind of story that I got. So that just sort of went in me um, and went to sleep. I think that, the storytelling really got its first, um, well, I, I, I was hired by a traveling outdoor school that doesn't exist anymore in Portland, Oregon, which is how I came West. And they asked me, uh, they wanted to hire an English teacher. They were like an academic version of Outward Bound. They worked with high school kids. And um, they wanted me to be the English teacher and they wanted me to do something with Native American culture I knew nothing about Native American culture, um, except that um, we had had some people from the AIM movement uh, visit our high school. We had a very interesting principal at that high school. He brought in Black Panthers and AIM people. And I remember thinking to myself, well, Indians live close to nature and they, they are peaceful people. <laughs> Why? Why do they have the highest adolescent suicide rate? Why do they have the highest infant mortality rate? Why do they have the highest poverty rate? You know, so I was sort of curious and um, I started reading and doing research. I was finishing up my master's and uh, I thought I'll read novels, but I uh, then I came into one book, which was all these coyote stories, coyote and badger, coyote and raccoon. And then I saw coyote meets farting boy. <laughs> and I thought, you know, like most East Coast people had this image of like Indians. It's very serious, you know, how and <laughs> very serious thing. 
And what I discovered is that Native people have a tremendous sense of humor. I mean, humor is a very important aspect of most Native peoples I've ever met. And so um, I just fell in love with these coyote stories because um, I think in a way coyote was a gift to me because through the coyote stories, you learn how to laugh at yourself. You know, they are classic trickster character. Uh, coyote builds North America. As I say, he brings everything we have uh, to be grateful for, the salmon and the rivers and the berries and the mountains. But he also, because he's a fool and he does things wrong, then things like death are brought into the world. And so everything we have to endure is, is brought also by coyote. And um, it was a kind of a healing of myself, I realize now, to tell these stories because it was a way, you know, the, the classic coyote, I mean, you see that in the coyote cartoons where coyote sort of, you know, jumps off the cliff or does it run, yeah, chases yeah. after roadrunner, always is falling to his death, coyote. And then, you know, it comes back to life because the creator gave coyote that power. And even um, um, a flathead Indian woman, Agnes Vanderberg, who I I met in that first summer, summer in 1979, and I went and visited her many times, and I learned to train uh, to tan buckskin with Agnes, and I learned to do uh, porcupine quill work with her, and we got along really well. And she was, um, she. I asked her once, uh, "What do you think about this? That people keep poisoning and shooting coyotes." and yet they've uh, expanded their range, increased their population. She just smiled at me and she said, um, you're never gonna get rid of old man coyote. <laughs> so, you know, this, you know, so I just, and I love, for some reason, I'm a, I'm a dog lover. I love, I love all the wild canines. I mean, the wolves and coyotes and um, foxes. And I, um, it just felt natural somehow. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's how that all began with coyote stories. And you would probably be also interested to know when she, in those, that first summer I met her, she would not tell me coyote stories um, because she said, well, they're just not very good in English. <laughs> and so I, I had to come back in the in the in the depth of winter to visit her to get a coyote story from her and it 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 in kind of excited my my interest what they sounded like in their own native language you know so that's you know i was up at a algonquin uh, provincial park in ontario and uh, it was a conference a professional conference and one of the things they did was take us out on the kind of porch or lanai or veranda, whatever it was. And they had had a moose carcass that was down on the thing below that wolves had been coming to. And so they they did a, one of those activities where somebody who knows what they're doing howls a bit and gets the wolves started. And it was one of the most amazing experiences I'd ever had. I, I had seen wolves before, but I had not heard the night chorus 
And like you, I canids are a real connection for me. We have two dogs, but everywhere we go, we last or earlier this year in East Africa, we got to watch a family of bat-eared foxes playing around their dens. And uh, I don't know, can canids are a very important connection with us in a lot of ways that are hard to describe. Well, you know, I'll just say, Tim, on that note, um, uh, I think that I always tease people. It's a, it's, a te it's a teasing attitude I have when I meet somebody who doesn't know much about wolves. And I'll say, uh, I'll say to them, well, you know, they really are family animals. <laughs> and um, of course, most people don't think of wolves like that. I always think about wolves as being bad and threatening people's livestock and the the big bad wolf of course and um but really when you spend time observing them they are amazing communicators for one thing i mean i don't know about these bad ear foxes but um i've watched wolves in the wild a little bit and it, for me it was stunning how they communicated with each other um, it was almost like telepathy. You know, I watched three wolves that kept trying to get between an, an elk and her, her calf. And the rest of the wolves were way down the valley sleeping or seemed to be sleeping. As soon as there was a bit of success with the three in with the with the um, the elk, it was like and they were all there. <laughs> they just uh, they just somehow knew. Um, and the, the, uh, to tell that story, I'm still trying to work on this as a story. The three tried for about an hour to get between the mother and the calf. And then it seemed like they were going to give up. And they started traipsing down the valley. And there was one who snuck back through the bushes. And when he or she got through and, and managed to separate the calf from the mother, that's when the whole pack was there. And then there was a the, the the kill happened very fast and so it just was stunning to me how how much they pay attention to each other communicate so i feel like that's probably part of the human canid um connection and a lot of people fall in love with wolves because they love how they they kind of take care of their young as in a cooperative way I was uh, listening this morning and watching some of your uh, YouTube videos that have been put up. And one of them I enjoyed very much was the Connecticut's. Oh, yes. Very <laughs> unexpected because I, I hear the name that you're going to tell a story about the Connecticut's and I'm expecting something about Eastern politics or something. And it's about wolves. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah. Uh, I would, any listener who wants to, get a taste of one of your uh, stories about wolves, I would recommend that. It was fascinating. Can I ask your formal education? Was it in English literature or something different? Yeah. No, it was in really uh, in literature and with a strong specialty in American poetry. So um, particularly Robert Frost, I wrote an honors thesis on um, the experience of the present moment in the writing of Robert Frost, T.S. Eliot, and Ernest Hemingway. And I 
was inspired at the end of my years in college, I was inspired by a wonderful teacher I had who had a class on Emerson and his influence on century American writers. So I still feel very connected to that period of the American romantics, Emerson and Thoreau. Um, recently, I've been reading a lot about John Muir. I know there's people who are highly critical of John Muir right now because apparently he said some pretty racist things, which I have to really investigate because he also said some really complimentary things about Native people. So I just need to investigate it more, but I love this, this world. So I could easily, like I could just go off on a tangent about John Muir <laughs> and I, I'm trying to keep myself reined in to talk more about storytelling, you know, I just wanna, I feel like I could read and read and read more about Muir. And I recently was in Scotland and I've made a pilgrimage to his hometown. His writing is so extraordinary. It's uh, as I, I've memorized parts of his writing now to use in performances. And what I've said to people is that Muir is somebody who can write about science. He can tell you science and it sounds like religion. <laughs> you know, just to listen to him talk about glaciers, it's it's like he was talking about some spiritual force or something. It's just really extraordinary uh, to read him. I need to read more. Yeah, one of the stories I tell in training young interpreters is about Enos Mills meeting him on a beach in California. And mm. Mills was, I think, 21 at the time and had been a mining engineer and a copper mine in Butte, Montana. And he was in California and he runs into this long haired, white haired man <laughs> and starts talking. And they both got very passionate about nature and what they loved. And Muir took him to Hetch Hetchy and Yosemite Valley and said, you, young man, you've got to write about these places. You've got to tell people about them. You've got to take them out to see it. And of course, yeah. Enos Mills went on to write, I don't know, 19 or 20 books in his 52 short years. And uh, we identify him as one of the founders of interpretation. But really, John Muir inspired him and shared many stories that led him to write about very similar thing so yeah well i i noticed in in you know one of the things that you wrote and i was thinking about this making this point that the the foundation of interpretation really all of the founders it seems to me, i mean not all of the founders but many of the founders especially like you're saying like in innis mills but also um uh freeman tilden were had you know had well Tilton was an English or a literature major and so I think I remember there was a beautiful exhibit at the Rocky Mountain National Park on early interpreters and many of them had arts backgrounds yes. and I used to uh, use a quote from Johannes Goethe um, and what is that quote uh, something like for for he to whom nature reveals her something, her something secrets, uh, he will feel an un, uh, sort of an unquenchable desire 
for her most worthy interpreter art. <laughs> and I've had people show up in my workshop and go, huh, art. And what I've always wanted to say to people is that you have to think of yourself as an artist. You might be a scientist, but also always thinking about the whole issue of interpretation that really the, the finest, uh, uh, you could say speakers or interpreters of science are also very artistic. I was thinking about um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I think was trained, someone told me he was trained as a dancer really? early on in his career, yeah. And there's nothing unscientific about him. You know, he's a very, he, he's a serious scientist, but he he's always, uh, he's got a sort of an artistic way of presenting information. That's what I'm always trying to figure out ways in my workshops of how to train that into people who think of themselves as information givers. I stayed very heavily with science through a bachelor's and master's degree and did a PhD in an oral, oral interpretation of literature. And I, for two reasons. One was I, I was in a lot of readers theater productions when I was in graduate school. Uh, I was in Lord of the Rings of all things done as readers theater. Wow. And, That's a big, and that's a but I also had in uh, a major professor, Marion Kleinow, someone who thought it was a great idea to put together children's literature and science, biology, and interpretation of literature. And so she let me literally construct my own curriculum for that degree that let me take children's lit courses over in the education department and forestry courses. And because uh, I had a lot of biology at that point. And then oral interpretation of literature and interpersonal communication to try to put all that together. And back then I was writing children's plays and was publishing them with Scott Forsman readers. And so I, it was a, a direction in art that I didn't expect to get into. Wow, that's wonderful. I would love to read some of your stuff. What, what are your favorite venues? You've, you've done some amazing things that yeah, I was thinking about that that question <laughs> because um, you know, in I've had some great experiences. I mean, most even most recently, I really, I think of the, the I gave two performances in Edinburgh this past spring, and um, I think the better performance was at the S Scottish Storytelling Center in Edinburgh. But um, the the really amazing place to perform was in this small chapel um, on the grounds of St. Mary's Episcopal Cathedral. And this chapel, to describe it, is uh, painted all four walls with a mural by a, a, um, an Irish painter whose name was Phoebe Tracare. And her paintings are very similar. They look a little bit like Blake. Uh, Blake's drawings and paintings. And she depicts three walls of various angelic beings, but also the forces of nature, fire and the, all of the animals and water and the winds are there. And walking in between are various sort of heroic human beings. 
um, like inventors and explorers of her day. And um, it's called the Song School. So this is where the, the, um, the choir rehearses in this room. And on the fourth wall are, are uh, three scenes from the life of Christ, which have to do with speaking. There's Pentecost when Mary speaks to all of the people and they can understand her in their different languages. And then there's a depiction of Christ healing someone who cannot speak. And then in the middle is the empty tomb where the, the women come to look for Christ to be coming back to life. I don't, I was not raised religiously. So this was all something I had to learn about, but I realized that the whole focus, this whole painting was about the song of creation. So, and I realized that maybe what Tracker was trying to talk to was uh, how do we sing the praises of the creation? And I said, well, that's something I can do. <laughs> so, so I put all these stories together. I love a challenge like that, to put all of my nature stories together under the, under the focus of a, of a theme, uh, like praising the creation. So then, anyway, so that's where I got to hear um, his, uh, his praising of really what glaciers do that makes them different from other forms of water. So that was beautiful. But I was thinking about the question because I think some of the most memorable, memorable performances I have are not in very extraordinary places. Um, like uh, Friday afternoon in a high school in Tule Lake, California, where the kids are all, I'm sort of like the, to keep them from rioting in the school or something, they come in and I, and I have to tell, and I'm, telling them stories. And then I managed to get them to really listen. You know, I had a similar experience in Salinas, California. I love telling stories in places where kids are not, usually don't get this kind of thing. And then they're always kind of amazed by it. Cause I think that there's, there's not a lot in our current life that where somebody is is merely creating a world with language, not with costume. It's not entertainment. It's something is entertaining, but it's something different. And so that's very, those places are very sweet to me. You talk about Scotland. I had a Scottish woman as uh, my professor for children's literature. And part of what she would tell us is she said, my Scottish grandfather would get all the grandkids together and start telling stories around the camp, around the fireplace. And she said his voice would get lower and more of a whisper. He had his storytelling voice on. And we learned <laughs> that when he did, we would lean further and further until our heads were nearly touching. And she, I just thought it was a very romantic memory of her grandfather. The, these are traditions have kept alive really important stories for us, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. And um, and I was thinking about, you know, um, well, how is that today? I mean, it's um, they have been kept alive, but they've also diminished. They're greatly diminished all over the world. I mean, even uh, I just got back from some of my native friends. I have a I have a friend who uh, it turns out he is the grandson of one of the first native people that I ever befriended. 
and I discovered him by accident, teaches, uh, he's very passionate about um, restoring his native language while there's still our native speakers. So I've been studying Ichiskin with him, which is the language of the people just north of here, the Wasku people just in on Warm Springs Reservation. And it's, it's a language that's of course related to Nez Perce and some of the other languages in this area. Uh, and so he does a thing called the canoe journey where they, they canoe down the Columbia River and then portage and then canoe up through Puget Sound and hundreds of native people show up there with the canoes. And so I've spent seven days camping with about 30, 40 native people in very, uh, when we were at, to Salilo Falls, you know, very impoverished community. And few people know their stories. And I've been, I know you had one of your questions was um, what I was going to do in the future. And I'm thinking now about how to work with the language to do more translations of the stories and actually teaching younger people to tell stories. <laughs> Because what Jefferson, my friend, is doing is teaching people how to sing the songs and drum and dance, and he's teaching them all of those aspects of culture. But the thing that is really, really important in all cultures, but especially in Native culture, is the storytelling. And I was also thinking of, a, of experiences that, here's another experience that was very moving to me. So I, uh, during COVID, there were, I knew a woman who took her class and ran it as an at-home uh, at school kind of a thing. And we could, we traveled together. So I helped them create um, a little play about coyote. Um, coyote brings the salmon to the Columbia River. And we were going to take it on tour. I, I had a friend who was Nez Perce. We were going to take it, and I can speak a little Nez Perce. So I, even though it's a Yakima story, I was going to tell some of it in Nez Perce. And these, we were taking it on the road. And we were going to combine this story where Coyote pulls down dams out of, you know, in, in mythic time, he's taking dams out of the Columbia River. We were going to look at dams <laughs> that are on the Columbia River and especially go all the ways up to the Snake River and see those four lower Snake River dams where there's a lot of pressure now, a lot of talk about pulling those dams out to be a huge event. But um, so we, we, we ended up the first, the first day we were up on the, on the Columbia River at the Dalles and we couldn't get into the visitor center. Everything was closed because of COVID. And I saw this native man you know, I could tell he was native man. He had a long braid down the back and he was messing with some of his fishing stuff. And I said, came up to him. I said, we're a group of kids traveling. Could you tell us something about the salmon? How, I don't, cannot see how the salmon get through this dam. And he, we, he said, sure. And he took us all down there and talked about it. And the kids said to him, yeah, well, we're going to go we're going up river to, to, to share a story. It's a Yakima story um, about the Columbia river. And they acted like, yeah, this is something we have to do. <laughs> and he, uh, he got very interested. Oh, really? He said, what story is that? Tell it to me. 
And so then the kids were, well, they had to start to tell the story to him. And it was really beautiful to watch how they recognized that he was seriously interested in this story. And his name is Andrew Wildbill. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the trip, we were in the Wallowa Valley, a whole other part of the trip, and discovered he was on the board of, we were at a museum and he was on the board of that museum. And so he became sort of a hero character in our journey, uh, this uh, Andrew Wildbill. So it was beautiful for me, to, for them to see that the value, traditional value of storytelling, but it needs some help. <laughs> it needs some active help. I mean, maybe as I get older, that's this is, this should be my job, you know, is passing it on. One of the things as we get older is that we get to spend more time often chasing passions we kind of left behind because the demands of making a living or doing the job we were hired to do. Uh, yeah. But uh, I'm a coffee farmer these days, and this podcast is an opportunity to share stories with colleagues and friends and and people I don't know very well and uh the combination the <laughs> Lisa and I have yin and yin and yang on our wedding rings <laughs> that we love that balance of that I see in your new book by the way of science mm -hmm. of the facts the information with the arts with why does it matter and how do we carry it forward? You've got to mention your new book. I want to go backwards to the passionate fact in a minute or two, but Tree with Golden Apples, I was reading the story of Adonis, and it reminded me of the story of Ohia Lahua here in the islands. Are you familiar with that story? No, 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 tell me. Ohia is a handsome young man, and Pele, the goddess of the volcano, uh, falls in love with him from the distance and wants him for her own. And when she pitches herself at him, he rejects her because he's in love with a maiden named Lehua. So Pele turns him into a crooked, gnarled tree called now modern scientific name Ohia Lehua. And he is terribly saddened. He's lost Lehua. And Lehua appeals to the gods and says, I'm left alone because Pele turned my lover into a tree. So they made her the flower on the tree, the beautiful red flower of the Ohio. Oh. And they're there forever. But of course, we tell tourists, if you pick that flower, it's going to rain today because you've separated Ohio. Mm. So it actually has this kind of little conservation message. And I don't know whether that was added recently or not, but uh, it's one of the stories we like to tell, but it's an Adonis type story. Yes. Yeah, so I think actually, um, yes, it is. And, you know, just to say one thing, two things came up in my mind. One thing is that, uh, that so many stories of flowers are sort of tragic or, or stories of love that have deep yearning in them. And if you think about that, was, that was the hardest connection to make between the, the myth and the science. And I think that Ian Edwards, who wrote the science part of the book, did such a wonderful job with that because he talked about how 
that really the flower of the plant is sort of the sexual attractant, right? It's going to get pollinated. And he talked about how he makes his students blush if he talks too much about what flowers are all about. And so that's one thing is that it's, oh, I wanted to, was kind of curious about a story about the flower on the vanilla plant. It's also a tragic love story. So many of them are that way. But I also think that, especially I noticed in Hawaii that they, that um, there's a lot of superstitions or let's say end of stories that are meant to for tourists not to take things away, to sort of leave things as they are. And I think that's, um, no, I think it's a good, it's a good thing actually. Maybe it's cultural evolution that's based on us becoming this huge attraction for tourism everywhere. But it's wonderful because it's keeping a lot of those traditional stories alive. And there are a lot of artists working with it. And part of what I liked about your book is, uh, first of all, I'm a tree nut. I love trees. I love tree poetry. I love tree stories. But Tree with Golden Apples, where you blend these myths, folk tales, legends, whatever, that you share as stories. And you mentioned uh, it's a collaboration with a, a Scottish ecologist, Ian Edwards. I just, yes, I, I like to, Greta Johnson is the artist and and I like to give a good pitch to Ian. Ian is a very special person. Uh, so he's a, he's a PhD botanist and he was, before he retired, he was the director of public engagement for the botanical, the Edinburgh Botanic mm-hmm. Garden. So he was, um, and a lover of stories. I mean, he he had hired me in the past. That was a great, great gig when you talk about good places um, performing. That was actually one of the better performances I can remember. He actually had designed in the botanical gardens in Edinburgh, a tree house that is, it's a small little sort of hobbit kind of a st- structure, not good for a tall person like me, but has a huge tree that is growing up behind. So it was a wonderful little cozy environment for storytelling. Um, so he was very, so we we worked, you know, he hired me for several things. And then when he retired and I finally got this book off the ground, I always thought he was the person I wanted to have write the science for it. So that's how that came together. Well, it's a nice collaboration. It's a lovely book. I'm seeing it in digital form here, which uh, is probably not nearly as good as having the real book in your hands, but uh, it's what was available in the amount of time I had to get it. Um, Can I take you back a little bit and ask The Passionate Fact, which is a book that came out more than a decade ago, 15 years ago? Yeah, it was. I think it came out in 90... Oh my. Maybe 96. Oh, long time yeah. ago. Yeah, because I, I know my first daughter was born in 94. Okay. <laughs> Still editing it while I was breastfeeding her. <laughs> so, Tell me what you mean by the passionate fact. Yeah. What I observed in certain scientists that I observed is that a scientist that has a great reputation um when you hear them speak about their science 
there's there's something that becomes storytelling like in it when you meet a scientist who is really passionate about their science and feels the urgency of that science being understood by the public um you i always see that there i always felt that there was um the best way i can describe it is a kind of um archetypal or spiritual there was a meaning that was greater than the science itself that was wanting to pass from the scientists to the public so to give you a brief example there was a woman that my husband brought years ago when i met my husband he he had a series of scientists who we invite, invited to come to central oregon and give lectures and he brought in this woman named Dr. Jane Belknap, who I believe is still working uh, for the somehow connected with Arches National Park. And she, I believe, discovered or furthered the knowledge about these cryptobionic crusts, these little crusts that form in the desert that hold water and seeds and, and plants. They begin the start of what, what plants manage to survive in deserts. And they are held together with blue-green algae. And that blue-green algae came from early uh, inland oceans. And she's, her personal story is that she started off by wanting to be a marine biologist. <laughs> but she ended up doing her work in the desert. And lo and behold, what did she discover in the desert? So um, these kind of people are so... Um, intoxicating you know you you listen to them and you you can't help but get swept up into the story that they are telling and what i often say to people is that science is a great story you know it's just a great story and so how to how to find your way to the story and that's where i came up with the idea that uh that it's not that i'm opposed to facts i love facts but where is there a fact that has passion in it, a passionate fact? And I love the way that title sort of grabbed a lot of people because people are passionate about many things, uh, but why, where, what is the story that is, what, that's really gluing the, that, all those facts together? Why, what is the story underneath it all that is there, um that is the is the, the kindling for that passion freeman tilden said uh passion love is a priceless ingredient he was he was watching a lot of skilled interpreters at national parks do programs at campfires and that sort of thing but he was recognizing there was something going on with them that we see today in jane goodall or uh any number of scientists who also tell the stories of in her case, the chimpanzee she works with, or yes. Carl Sagan before his uh, death was such a passionate interpreter of what's in the universe, what's in the night sky, yes. David Attenborough, on and on and on and on. Yeah, I was when I was in uh, the UK recently, and then there was an interview of David Attenborough done by the BBC during the coronation of King Charles. And of course, Charles and Attenborough have David have had a lot of sharing 
and uh, it was beautiful. And then at one point, was it did she ask that or somebody else asked him? No, it was a it was actually a French um, government person who had asked him uh, why he wouldn't retire. <laughs> but <laughs> why would he? Why I never want him to retire. He's oh, like no. ninety something. But I just thought I hang on every single word. Uh, there's a person with so much experience. He just, you know, he just wouldn't want to sit at his uh, at his knee forever and ever and ever, learning from him. Um, so yeah, same thing with Jane uh, Goodall. It's a good thing you point out about love. You know, I recently was giving a presentation at a science conference, and somebody asked me. She said, friends of mine would say that it is your white privilege, sorry, this is getting political, but <laughs> that uh, enables you to do this work, tell these stories from all these different cultures. And I, she was asking, how do you feel about that? Or what, what is your response to that? You know, you're right as a non-Native person to tell Native stories, non-African person to tell African stories non-Chinese person to tell Chinese stories and so on. And I said, no, it is not my white privilege that enables me or drives me to do this. <laughs> it is the fact that I'm an artist and that I love this work and I love these stories. And I have to read and research hundreds of stories that I don't like. <laughs> And I don't think I can tell them. Some of my best stories I read. And then two years later, I finally, it dawned on me how to tell that story. So it's really love that is driving the work. And I really wish, um, I told people in the audience, they said, if you find a story that you love, you should tell it. And it's very likely that if you tell it, somebody is going to criticize the way you tell it. And that's a good thing. Let them criticize you. Learn something from the criticism and keep on telling it. But don't stop telling stories because if you, especially if you love one. And I, and actually, when I said that to her, I think that reminds me of actually Jefferson's grandmother, who told me when I was just a spring chicken, you know, in my 20s. And she she said to me, the most important thing is that when you go to a group of children and you tell them a story, you must be in a good mood, she said. <laughs> because whatever mood you're in, that's what's going to go into the children. So again, like you can't, you can't be a storyteller if you're not carrying this love and desire to give something. I read you saying you have to be a good listener. Yes, yeah, a combination. I, I always, is, I think I said that in that book or maybe in The Passionate Fact that uh, the, what is I said, the, the listening is the sort of, um, sister of storytelling that you can't actually do one without the other. I mean, I feel like, 
you start as a storyteller, you start, you start with your own initiative. You have something you love and you want to bring out and you have a feeling about why you want to bring it out. Then you are, as the story gets up and going, then you're really watching, you could say through your eyes, and it's a kind of listening. In between the telling of the story, you are kind of um, listening to the audience, what they're picking up, what they're not picking up. Um, and so that's why it's really hard, if, if at all possible, to do storytelling without an audience, right? You're listening to them. The There has to always be this interchange between the audience and the teller. It's also true in so many small ways. It's one of the things I that made me refer to this as reflections on interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. In mm. Hawaii, Hawaiian culture dictates that you talk story when you meet someone. Mm. You don't mm. go to business immediately. Mm. Korea is very similar. You go into an office with a Korean professor or a Korean business person. You start talking about your family and who you are and where, what's going on in your life and things other than whatever your business purpose might be. And oh. it's one of the reasons I always ask where someone grew up and what got them into what they're doing. Uh, you know, we're on a journey in our career. It isn't just we succeeded at something and people need to hear about our our book, our life, our success, that hopefully they need to hear about our journey as well. Why it it isn't a direct journey. We don't we don't dream at eleven years old of being what we end up being at sixty or seventy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's exactly the truth for me because I I always wanted to be an English teacher. That's what I thought I wanted to be, but uh, in the early years when I tried to get jobs as as teachers, it was very hard to get jobs in Portland at that time, and uh, it was out of frustration that I started storytelling, and then it was like a series of what I call happy accidents. <laughs> that happened. I would be someplace and someone would overhear me speaking. And then boom, one thing came. That's how I came to interpretation. I was someplace. I can't remember where I was. Tom, Tom in Northern Virginia, I think it was. And he said, oh, he said, your work is so related to interpretation. You should go to an interpretation conference. And I went, the first conference I went to was in Montana. It was a regional conference. And every every government guy that got up there and talked about things, it was just this boring kind of like blah, 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 blah. And then there was this Jerry, uh, I think it was Jerry Fra Franklin. Uh, he was the head of interpretation for the Forest Service in those days. And he, he, illustrated every point he had to make still talking bureaucracy but he used a metaphor almost every time he he and and so I could use him as an example in my session I you know my session followed that and I could say now that what he's doing is he's making pictures what he's doing is enlivening the information in a way that you can experience it as a as a sensory physical thing and so that was my first step into interpretation. Um, 
and it was like in that in that session they just got people on fire. I think they start to realize that that's what they're actually doing. My first presentation at a national conference was at Cape Cod, 1980, and it was on using the arts and interpretation. Uh-huh. And I used poetry uh, for much of it and, and a little bit of storytelling, but uh, ended with, I've always been very passionate about Bluegrass, old time, traditional Americana, uh, Celtic music. And I finished with inviting people in the audience who knew how to play or sing to come up front. And we did, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? It attracted all sorts of different things. It it was one of those things where I'm sure you've experienced people come up after your presentation and go, oh my gosh, I've got to get you with this audience. I was always aware that the best things I did at a campfire program or whatever, were a combination of music, storytelling, science, food. Yes. I love the art of food, especially yeah. cultural food, food that ties thematically with what you're doing or where, where you are or whatever. Yeah, yeah. What's next for you? What are you uh, excited about? I've got a lot on my plate. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Well, I'll start with what I'm most excited about. <laughs> uh, well, that's hard. I flip back and forth between. Okay, so I I set my mind to the idea that I was going to produce three more books similar to the one I just did. Wow. That's a big, big load. But I um I would like to do a book of animal stories and uh, called, I already have the title for it, Dreams of Animals. And the similar thing, I would probably group, like we were talking about canids and big cats, and I would group it a little bit and then have the science, not with each story, but with a section. Um, but I want to put, I want to put all of my material down in print so that it's available for people to use at a future time when I'm not on this plane. <laughs> okay. And um and so I want to do one on birds also, bird myths, and I want to do one on water. And because water is a new thing for me in a way, it's I think that's where a lot of my excitement is. I've just um okay, so that's one thing. Now let me switch to another piece. I've done some performance pieces. You talk about great venues. I've did um some performance pieces with a musical ensemble out of San Francisco called Left Coast Chamber Ensemble. And it was really successful. We did one performance uh, that was, they hired a composer who wrote music that went with my stories. And then it was performed with a flautist, cellist and percussionist. And now they've invited me to do California stories. And I've been reading, reading, reading native California stories, researching. And I keep finding super, well, I read hundreds of stories that I couldn't tell, but I've, I've found some really interesting stories about water. And I think it's, it's really interesting to think about how to bring those stories forward in this time when water is such an issue, especially in California. Um, so 
so the the stories I have the fewest stories for are my water stories, and yet I feel like that's like a very important book to do. And that leads me to the fourth thing that I've been inspired by on this recent canoe trip with Jefferson Green. Um, I had a beautiful experience with a six-year-old boy whose Indian name, his, his, his English name is Vincent, but his Indian name is something like he who tells stories. Oh, wow. And he's a bright, bright, curious child. And I also met a 22-year-old uh, young man who has left his alcoholism and left, you know, Native people all have struggling with some kind of a problem. And he's left his alcoholism and really taking up his culture and I want to teach these people how to tell stories. I want to, so with little Vincent, to give you, here's another story. Um, we, his, we were camping together. His father had a friend. The, next thing we know, we had like five or six salmon to fillet. We're going to have salmon at dinner. And his father was teaching him how to fillet the salmon. So then we had these salmon carcasses. And I said, come on, Vincent, we're going to take those carcasses and throw them in, in the river. And he said, no, what, we, why don't we just throw it in the trash can? I said, no, because that's not part of the system. Yeah. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, what do you mean system? A six-year-old. So yeah. I said, I said, well, it's the system of how everything is connected. So we went down to the river and I told him the Haida story of Salmon Boy which basically says that why you need to throw the carcasses back into the river. And I said how that feeds lots of little bugs that live in the river. And then the baby salmon, when they come, they eat those bugs. And that's the whole system. That's how it feeds itself. That's why we, he, he just was eating this up. That's <laughs> and great. I thought, I have to teach this person to tell these stories. I gave him, I had a bunch of CDs with me for giving away and I gave him a bunch. He was already listening to them. And, and I just felt like I have to do that too. So those are all the things together that I'm, I'm working on. You, you really yeah. do have a lot on your plate. You know, the good thing about having your health as you grow older is you also have a real awareness of that there is a limit that we and so i i know that as i think about what i want to do before i go away and go become and by the way i want to go back in the system i don't want i don't want to go to the to a, a box in the cemetery i want to go out there and be a part of the world but uh i wish you well with all of that i will i've enjoyed reading your book would invite anybody to go to amazon and put your name in and they'll find a whole list of things, including some of your uh, stories for children. But thanks again for allowing us to sit down and get to know each other better than we ever did back at an NAI conference. Yes, yes. Thank you also, Tim. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And it it's really a treat to discover that you have a doctorate in oral interpretation, because I hope maybe we can share a we can share a stage or a performance or some poems at some point.
Well, yeah. I have many fond memories of sitting on a stool under a spotlight and <laughs> hoping that the audience was with me. You know, so, and I know you do that so well. So, yeah, yeah. Happy Thanks. travels in your storytelling career. Thanks again. Yes. Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today on Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. Next week, my guest is Jean-Marie Twombazi, who's a safari guide and wildlife photographer in Rwanda. From September 25th to October 4th, I'll be teaching a virtual certified interpretive guide course via Zoom. You can learn more about that at interpnet.com under their certification calendar or at heartfeltassociates.com, our website. Also, I'd like to thank Mark Stoffel for use of Buckminster Waltz from his Coffee and Cake album. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Aloha. Aloha.